0: Oh hey, didn't see you there. Today we're gonna to be interviewing Donald Robertson. He is the one who introduced me to Stoicism back in December. He is the author, modern Stoic, entrepreneur, psychotherapist as well, and has a background in cognitive behavior- behavioral therapy. And uh, in this interview, it was really interesting. He talks more than just about Marcus Aurelius's life and how to apply Stoicism to the modern world, but he also dives into kind of the background of Stoicism from Socrates, Plato, uh, another a couple other philosophers as well and kind of puts a historical context to what life would have been like back then and what lessons kind of lasted through time and you can apply in the future. And uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a fun interview and I just wanna thank Donald Robertson again for uh, letting me interview him. But uh, I guess let's jump into this one and uh, learn how to think like a Roman emperor. Welcome to the Zenfulness Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Schmidt, and this podcast is about the transformation process for people who envision possibilities, cultivate their courage, and tap their potential. We are part of a group here who are inspired to chase their dreams, overcome limitations, and take action in the real world. Thank you for listening to the Zenfluence Podcast. Let's get started. So welcome to the Zenfluence Podcast. Today, I have an amazing guest and author, uh, the author of a stoic book, called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, um, actually introduced me into Stoicism in December. And after reading this, it had just a profound impact on my life. And I wanted to dive deeper and to get to know Donald more on just a personal level, not only his ideas about Stoicism and his thoughts on Marcus Aurelius, but also deeper into his personal life and how he transitioned into the person he is today. So I guess with that, Donald, I'll just pass over the mic to you and uh, you can introduce who you are and what you do.
1: Okay. Cool. Well, first of all, thanks very much for inviting me along for this chat today. It's a, a pleasure to have the opportunity. Um, so I'm the author of about six books now, I think, on stoicism and uh, psychotherapy and related stuff. And the last one's How to Think of Roman Emperor. And I'm currently working on a graphic novel about the life and philosophy of Marcus Aurelius as well. So, my background is that I studied philosophy at university, and then from a background in academic philosophy, I got I started training in counseling and psychotherapy um, because I wanted to kind of do something that was somehow related to philosophy, but the I could make a living out of and that would involve helping other people and uh, so I stumbled across the idea that maybe there was a connection with psychotherapy and I got into that field and ever since then like I've been working in this kind of slightly unusual niche area that's the overlap between philosophy and psychotherapy and what started off as a bit of a hobby a bit of a quirk in a way is is kind Mm. of ended up being the main thing that I, I do and I'm known for I guess.
0: So, so Donald, uh, in school, you studied psycho, like psychotherapy, or
1: I studied philosophy first, um, and uh, I, my degree is and my first degree is in philosophy, and then uh, my master's degree is was at an interdisciplinary uh, centre, at Sheffield University, and I studied philosophy and psychotherapy from a, an interdisciplinary point of view. And so that kind of set me up for the rest of my career in a way. I started writing books not long after that. I trained as a psychotherapist. I trained in a bunch of different modalities of psychotherapy. Um, I started off doing psychodynamic therapy and humanistic therapy, but then mainly I ended up doing cognitive behavioural therapy, and that's kind of what I became known for. And I, I guess if I look back in my life, I had you know I was lucky because I had, and I've noticed this when I speak to people. Um, one of the benefits of being a therapist or a counsellor is you get to speak to a lot of people one-to-one
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I had a practice in Harley Street in central London so I, I saw At the same time, by the way, also, I was working as a schools counsellor in South London. So I was working with socially excluded kids. And then in the evening, I'd go and and work with like, uh, you know, CEOs of big companies and, uh, you know, maybe even some celebrities and stuff like that in Harley Street. So it was a weird kind of contrast. But one of the things I realized is when I spoke to people that were very successful, you know, they'd often. we have this idea of kind of the American dream and stuff and working hard to achieve your goals. But mm-hmm. I did notice when I talked to people that were successful, they, their version of their life story was often that they had a number of lucky breaks or opportunities. Yeah, so maybe it's the kind of talent meets opportunity thing. You know, you kind of have to have both. And I think about that now I'm a little bit older. I look back in my life and I think, you know, of it as a series of lucky breaks that I had or opportunities that I came along. And, and, you know, I definitely seized those opportunities and tried mm-hmm. to make the most out of them. But, uh, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was lucky that one day a guy came along to our university and gave a talk to the students, and he was a psychotherapist. And he said, psychotherapy and philosophy go really well together. And that planted the idea in my mind. And then I began practicing psychotherapy, I became friends with a a famous American hypnotist, a guy called Gil Boyne, Mm -hmm. and uh, (laughs) we were just watching the Rocky movies uh, with my little girl. She's really into Rocky, and uh, Gil hypnotised Sylvester Stallone uh, when he was an aspiring actor to help him develop his creative uh, inspiration to come up with the script for Rocky. The story goes. Um, So I was friends with this guy, and he he was kind of my mentor for a while, and he got me more and more into doing psychotherapy. And another lucky break I had was I got a phone call late one Friday night from some guys that were running a a psychotherapy training, and their trainer had bailed on them, and so they were panicking. They had 100 people who were turning up for this course, and they said, could you come at short notice and put together a course to train these therapists? And so I did that. And so early on in my career, I kind of got catapulted into delivering training. So I ran a training school eventually for therapists in the UK, and I did that for maybe a decade or something. Mm-hmm. And then uh, about six years ago now, I immigrated to Canada, and since then I've been mainly working online, doing e-learning, and uh, doing more writing, and stuff like that.
0: So, so when you immigrated to Canada, that's more of when you got more into stoicism and kind of writing more books, or were you always into...
1: I was always into stoicism, um, but since I moved to Canada, I probably just shifted the focus a bit more onto writing and, and doing mm. online training. I guess these things always overlapped because I'd always been involved with delivering online courses or like online CBT type stuff. Mm. And then I just did more and more of that as I started to travel more. When I was a young guy, I hardly ever traveled. You know, my life, I often think when I was a uh, up until my early 20s, was very different when I was a young guy growing up my family were very poor and, and I, I think I'd hardly ever really left my hometown like the small town in, in Scotland there. So so you,
0: I grew up in Scotland? and
1: Scotland yeah and I lot it's a little coastal town and I, I just I, I remember really thinking I just never imagined mm-hmm. like that I would ever really have the opportunity to travel much and now I travel a lot so I'm kind of feel like I'm I'm making up for the fact that when I was growing up, my friends would tell me that they'd gone on holiday to the States or whatever. And I'd be like, wow, they're so lucky. You know, I'd never be able to imagine doing that, you know. And so now you know, the life I live now is very, very different from the life I had as a, as a kid.
0: So so Donald, uh, being born in Scotland and growing up there, how what, what do you think separated you to kind of move to the UK after... Uh, kind of chase your dreams in uh, philosophy and psychotherapy, and just kind it's of. Tell really a weird story about that.
1: When I left university, I got a first. I graduated top of my year, and uh, it was me and one other person. We were joint top of the year. I got first class honours in philosophy, and so everybody thought I would was kind of a in to go and and become a, a philosophy lecturer, go and do my PhD and stuff. But my application to do a PhD got turned down. For some reason, I think I just did a really bad job of filling out the paperwork. So mm-hmm. it should have been a, like a, a shoe in because, uh, you know, I graduated at Topham, one of the, the leading universities in the UK. Um, and I, I went back to my small town and I suddenly realized um, I couldn't get a job because nobody would hire me. Like, there weren't any jobs really that you could get with a philosophy degree. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just for kind of like I'd apply for just like unskilled jobs like working um at one point i was applying for i remember applying for a cleaning job in the airport and they turned me down i thought why can't i even get these like jobs and i realized it was because they thought i was over qualified or something or they didn't they thought i i I wasn't going to take the job seriously Mm -hmm. so i was kind of i thought wow i'm really stuck now you know why because i'm kind of overqualified, but also underqualified. i just can't find anything and uh i'd been to stay with some friends in a, a place in England called Reading, it's in the news today actually, sadly, because there was a terrorist attack there, I noticed, it just happened today. But I lived in Reading for a little while and uh, I wanted to go back there because I knew that there were loads of recruitment agencies there and I could tell there was one recruitment agency in my hometown and something like, you know, 20 or something and crazy in Reading. So it had, and I knew it had the lowest unemployment rate in the country, right? Mm-hmm. So I had no money at all, and actually I arranged with some of my friends we were going to get in a car and drive down, and they bailed on me at the last minute, and I was so kind of frustrated. I took the last, like, I had like, you know, 30 or 40 bucks or something, virtually nothing, and uh, I got a bus ticket all the way from Scotland down to the south of England, and uh, I got off the bus at like 10 o'clock at night or something, like 9 o'clock. I remember it was just beginning to get dark, and uh, when I was a young guy, I was pretty ballsy. So, you know, I had no, I thought that's a, That's the last of my money. I've got nothing. And uh, I had like, you know, 10 bucks or something left. And I, I went in a bar and I just walked around all the people in the bar. And uh, I said, listen, I've just got here. I don't have anywhere to stay. there any chance I could just crash on your floor. And this guy who I'll remember to this day, a biker called Eddie said wow. that I could sleep on his kitchen floor if I bought him a kebab. <laughs> <Wow>. and, <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So I, I didn't have to sleep on a park bench, right? He let me sleep on his kitchen floor, and then I went and I, I started applying for office jobs, and I got work straight away, and uh, and that was how I kind of got set up in England. But literally, um, I mean, it was to me, it was just an adventure. But like literally, I just got on a bus with like you know ten or twenty bucks in my pocket and nowhere to stay, and you know I just I just went and I always remember that my friends really wanted to go because they felt stuck in this little town. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they were, they told me they were they were just too kind of scared. They went, "What if we get there? And where will we stay? And what if we don't know anybody? And you know, it's scary." And I was like, mm-hmm. "You guys are never gonna get out of here unless you just bite the bullet and do it." So I did that, and I, I guess I never looked back.
0: So, so I guess, what was your next step once you got to England <laughs> and kind of got working there? Like that—that's unbelievable that you slept on a kitchen floor the first days. But the thing is, I like how you went around the bar and asked people because. I think so many people uh, wouldn't really know what to do in that situation. Like, they would just kind of get to this new city and just not ask anyone.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, it seems like a, I don't know if I'd advise someone else to do that, but that's what I did. That was what I was like when I was a young guy, though. Like, I just thought I could talk my way out of, like, any problem. Mm -hmm. So, um yeah, I started working and I started training in psychotherapy. I had no money to train in psychotherapy. I was too young to be allowed on the, the course. I think the minimum age, I think that it was something like, I, was, I remember I was a year too young to be admitted to uh, an approved training course. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wrote a letter. Again, this is like I wouldn't take no for an answer when I was a young guy. So I wrote a letter to the college and I said, listen, you know, I really want to do this. And I don't see any real reason for this role. And they said, okay, it's not a strict, it's kind of a guideline. So we'll bend the rule and allow you to enroll on the course, even wow. though you're a year <laughs> younger than you should be. And uh, and then I had no money. And so the internet wasn't really like, it was just kind of beginning to, to become popular then. So I, I used to, uh, you know, I'd go to the library and there were books in the library that had lists of um, charities and funds and things that you could apply to, and it was a really tedious process. So I remember I wrote dozens and dozens of letters, like manually, like handwriting things, filling out forms, and looking up in the book in the library. And I got um, two different charities, I think, gave me money that covered about half of my fees, and then I just worked um, and saved all my money um to cover the the rest of my fees to train as a psychotherapist i'll tell you another story when i was a kid and also i remember this this lady's name as well weirdly Mm -hmm. i don't have a great memory for names but there was a lady called marcy something who um it was like a a guidance counselor when i was a kid at the college that i went to Mm -hmm. and uh, i sat down one day and uh, she said so what do you want to do donald And this is, I guess I was like 17 or something, and uh, I said, uh, well, I've started reading books by Freud and stuff, and I I think I'd like to be like a philosopher, a psychotherapist and stuff like that. And she kind of heaved a sigh, and she went, you'd be better off like learning a trade, like being a mechanic or something like that. She goes, because, and this is what she said to me, she goes, it's only well-off kids that can afford to do stuff like that, because the training is really expensive. So if I was you, I'd forget about it. Why like, and get uh, yourself on an apprenticeship scre- scheme to be a mechanic or something like that, right? And I remember being gutted, you know, and walking away from that. I, I, weirdly, I can't remember what happened next, but obviously, I, you know, I walked away with my tail between my legs, thinking, well, that's that then. My dreams are shattered or whatever. And I, I must have taken a, a couple of days for me to gradually get annoyed about it, and then it's like I'm just going to do it anyway. Why? Mm-hmm. Like, so I figured out somehow a way to do it, and one of the charities was that gave me maybe like a quarter of the money that I needed to to get my training done, Um, was like a a trust fund uh, set up by Sean Connery uh, <laughs> how weird is that? So <laughs> I have Sean Connery to thank yeah. for like, giving me uh, some of the money that I needed to go and train as a therapist. And so I trained in therapy, and I started practicing. And then I got kind of more ballsy because I, my whole life, I had to be an entre- entrepreneur and be self-employed and stuff. Mm-hmm. And and now I'll, I'll tell you another little weird story. Um, so like I, I never really my career in academia, never really progressed the way that people thought it would. So everyone thought, well, you know, you'll you'll probably go on and and become a philosophy lecturer or do your PhD. So eventually I I applied several times to do PhDs and it never really worked out for various reasons. So I remember at one point I was applying to do a PhD in psychotherapy Mm -hmm. rather than philosophy. So I was going to kind of combine philosophy and psychotherapy. And I went to a, uh, one of the leading colleges in the UK, which I, I guess I better not name, um, and I, I had an interview with the uh, the person that was going to be um, that was in charge of the the, the PhD program, and uh, she said the weirdest things to me. Like academics sometimes can be kind of strange people, right? Yeah. And she said something really off to me on the phone for a start, and then I got there and. Uh, I said to her, what do, because I was a businessman by this point, I was running my own practice and stuff, and I said, so, like, it costs tens of thousands of dollars, whatever, to do a PhD, and I said, what do you guys actually do in return for that? I know I write a PhD, but what am I actually mm-hmm. paying you for? And she said, well, nothing. She said, uh, and I said, aren't there, like, seminars I attend? And she said, we we don't really have those. And she said, you get access to a library, and I was like, well, I've, I can use the British Library anyway, like, it's, yeah. you know, it's the, one of the biggest libraries in the world, like, I don't need your library. And uh, she said, basically, we just mark your PhD, and uh, and that's it. And, uh, and, she, and then she turned around to me and said, to be honest, we think of students as being a bit of an inconvenience,
0: right? Oh, and
1: I was like, well, how much supervision will I have? So I, I walked out thinking, wow, there's no way that I'm going to sign a check mm-hmm. and, and give it to these guys, right? So again, I walked away kind of a bit annoyed, mm-hmm. and I thought, doing a PhD is just writing a book, right? And I thought, why should I write a book and pay them to market? Why shouldn't I write a book and get paid for doing it? So the first book that I wrote was called The Philosophy of Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, right? And that's how I ended up deciding that I wanted to write that book because I was annoyed at the whole idea of paying to do a PhD. And I thought, I'm just going to write a book and they can pay me for doing it rather than me, you know, like paying to, to do a PhD program because uh, because of the, the, the meeting that I'd had. And I, so I guess it's weird. Things that seem like setbacks at the time, you know, often when you look back on them from a distance, you think maybe that bad interview experience was one of the most helpful things that ever happened to me. Maybe my mates not turning up in the car to drive me down to... was one of the best things that could have happened to me. you know. But at the time, it just seemed like you know a, a problem. And then the other, another weird thing that happened there was the, the psychotherapy organisation in the UK said, we've decided to help out first-time authors. So we've got a panel of psychotherapists, and we're gonna encourage people to submit books on, on therapy and we'll, uh, we've teamed up with one of the publishing houses in the UK. So if you send us a proposal, we'll have a look at it. So I sent them a proposal for a book called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Right? And this How old was, this were you was,
0: when you sent that proposal? This
1: was like, I don't know, like, it must have been, um, I don't know, like, maybe it was like 15, 20 years ago. So I have to think about wow. that. <laughs> it was, it was a while back, right? And uh, so I sent it to them and uh, they turned it down and then they there was like a the woman that was working with them contacted me and said why don't you send it directly to the the publisher because they might want to look at it so I sent it direct to the publisher and they turned it down as well now I've heard over the years many stories like motivational stories from people Mm -hmm. that they said they said they wrote a book and they submitted it to like 50 publishers and they all turned it down but they wouldn't give up and eventually they found the publisher and that's always seemed like a really weird story to me because i thought like you know after you've been turned down like 10 times don't you think maybe i need to change the proposal a bit or something Why did the same thing over and over again so i didn't do that i got turned down twice and then i contacted the publisher and i said uh listen i hope you don't mind me asking you this question but what sort of books do you actually want to publish? And they said, we'd really like to publish a book, not called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, but called The Philosophy of Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. So I took the proposal that I'd written and I really just changed the title and tweaked it a little bit and sent it back and they sent me a contract for my first book.
0: Wow,
2: holy.
1: Because I asked them what they wanted. Mm-hmm. and what they wanted was virtually what I was trying to get them to accept anyway, but just with a slight modification, but then the double irony about that was they didn't like the title, but then the, I used, I just used that title again for the last book that I wrote, and it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was much more successful, so I, I knew all along it was a good title I even though it was turned down, I used it again like 15 years later or something
0: So so here's a good question <laughs> for you, Donald um, like you obviously have these moments in your life, multiple moments where Kind of the gates close, someone says no, and then you kind of find a way around it. Like when you were young in your college with the publisher, uh, just even moving to a new city. What do you think separates a person like you who is able to, you know, take a step back and kind of navigate through it and someone who um, just gets stopped dead in their tracks?
1: I think that's a good question. It's hard to say, you know, I mean, personally, I would say that the reason. The thing that drove me was that I, I lost my father when I was about fourteen years old,
0: right. and
1: you know I I kind of vividly remember being told that I was basically on my own, why and so I the message that I took from that that sunk in quite deeply is that you know you can't just kind of like coast you know nobody's gonna come and help you like you're gonna sink to the bottom of the pile like and you mm-hmm. know you're gonna really struggle. Like, if you just kind of try and coast through life, you know, you need to seize every opportunity that comes on. You're gonna to have to put up a fight, like, if you want to actually get anywhere, like. Um, so I think, I don't know really what makes the difference, but for me, I, I, it seems to me that it was that experience as a teenager, and, and again, like, you know, maybe getting, um, you know, some of the, some negative experiences that I had. Um, you know made me like feel quite bad about the future maybe a bit scared about the future but the you know you reach a point whether either you just kind of give up or you try and fight back and as a kid fairly early on I thought I'm not accepting this you know I'm gonna try and like, fight my way through it and then I guess luckily I managed to um, become self-employed fairly early on. Mm. And uh, and then that became kind of part of my very nature throughout the rest of life, really is that I have the mentality of an entrepreneur or somebody who's, who's self-employed and is you know, completely uh, independent in, in that respect. Mm. And Gil encouraged me a lot in that respect. He was very passionate about, uh, about this. He had a tendency to, uh, my friend who was the hypnotist, had a tendency to overstate things. But he once said to me um, something that I thought was crazy at the time. So he said, I don't believe that a person can be entirely emotionally mature unless they are self-employed. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Gil, that's a ridiculous thing to say. You know what? Like loads of people are, I mean, most people aren't self-employed and stuff like that. You can't say that. And it, But it stuck in my mind that he said that to me. And I thought maybe there's a grain of truth. it. like, Certainly that's how I kind of feel. You know for me now and i have worked in offices and things it always reminds me of being in school you know you sit at a desk and there's a manager it's mm-hmm. like the headmaster or something i feel like i'm being infantilized you know turned into a kid again yeah. like, if i have to if i have to go back and work in an office so you know i've always preferred to uh, to be independent and self-employed and to do that you have to be kind of creative so although in some ways i, I you know i wasn't naturally uh, entirely drawn to writing it wasn't my plan to become a writer I, I took to it in the sense that i thought here's you know here's a situation i have to make something out of nothing i have to make it work mm-hmm. um so that aspect of writing i guess appeals to me
0: so so i guess um kind of a weird question but gil uh, obviously played a, a big role in your life um by what you said but what would you say are some of the lessons you learned from gil or maybe a big takeaway that you uh learned from him
1: Gil's big belief um, was, in, and there were many things, I remember having a conversation with him once and I said to him, listen, I don't agree with everything you say, So we disagreed about our approaches to therapy, um, but we were good friends anyway. But his a big part of his approach was con about confidence, he thought confidence is really the key, like you can have two people and one of them is really skilled at a job and really knowledgeable about it and another person maybe lacks some of those skills but they are more articulate and more self-confident like the more articulate more self-confident person always is going to have an advantage in the long term in life it kind of doesn't matter what skills you've got in many situations if you can't actually sell yourself and communicate well then you you potentially life is going to pass you by whereas there are many people in the world who, who have negligible skills <laughs> like maybe even aren't that smart but their confidence is enough to to get them through um so that they take advantage of the opportunities when they do come along so the girl really hammered that message home to me that you know you need to believe in yourself and inspire other people to believe in themselves as well
0: mm-hmm. so f- from that point donald uh Coming back to more uh, psychotherapy and CBT, um, what exactly is psychotherapy uh, to the average uh, viewer?
1: Well, really, psychotherapy, in a sense, unfortunately, it's it's become a very broad term. It has different connotations in different countries, by the way. The way that people approach doing psychotherapy and it's the the status of it as a profession is very different, and maybe even between different states in America, for instance. But it's the medicine of the mind, like psychotherapy is the attempt to help people with psychological, emotional problems, or behavioral problems. And we think of it as a modern discipline. Most people, many people. Incorrectly think that psychotherapy originated with Freud, but actually mm-hmm. Freud had trained in psychotherapy um, with a guy called Hippolyte Bernheim in, uh, in France. And so there was a hypnotherapy, or hypnotism, was the main Victorian precursor of psychoanalytic and psychodynamic therapy. So first it was hypnotism, really, and then out of that evolved modern psychotherapy gradually. Mm-hmm. And after Freud's time, the cognitive behavioral therapists came along in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and they abandoned the Freudian approach and all the various spin-offs of it, and they tried to start again from scratch, and they adopted a, an approach that was inspired by Stoic philosophy. Now, I said that many people believe incorrectly that psychotherapy is a modern phenomenon, because even the term therapy of the mind, or medicine of the mind, or talking, uh, cure. These kind of ways of describing the process existed in, in the ancient world, in ancient Greece, in Rome. The word therapy, therapia is used in Greek to describe uh, a psychological therapy that's based on philosophy. And the school of ancient philosophy that's most associated with this is, is Stoicism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, to some extent, Socrates set the stage for that, and maybe Pythagoras as well. But it was really the Stoics that became known for developing uh, philosophy into a, a therapy for the psyche, and then that was kind of forgotten about for about two thousand years. And then, uh, the cognitive th- weirdly, it's such a strange thing. And then the the cognitive therapists rediscovered it. There's a guy called Albert Ellis. Ellis, I'll tell I'll tell you something I don't usually say when I'm chatting to people about this, but um, I'll go just go into a little bit more detail. You know, like Freud dominated psychotherapy and, and the people that were influenced by him. And I feel like that was like the dark age of psychotherapy because Freud was really a pseudoscientist, in my opinion, and anti-science in many respects. Um, people often assume that psychotherapy research only really began in the 60s and 70s, and that's not true. Like, people were doing scientific research in psychotherapy even, like, at the end of the 19th century, but Freud and his friends all kind of stymied that. Like, they were, again, fundamentally against science on principle. And so that really held back the progress of psychological therapy for, honestly, maybe half a century. Like, we lost while these guys were interpreting dreams and stuff like that that was much more speculative. Mm. And then... It, it all kind of their their kingdom kind of fell apart a bit because they all started to argue with each other, and so people started to look around for a, a better approach, um, a more reliable approach. Now Albert Ellis in New York in the nineteen fifties um, had trained in psychoanalytic therapy, and one of the interesting things about this was he was a sex therapist. Like he he worked with people who had sexual problems. Um, like uh, frigidity, impotence, sexual performance, anxiety, and things like that, was part of what he did. And many people that work with these fairly kind of concrete problems, um, kind of like they have a physical dimension, Um, so inevitably began to see Freudian psychoanalysis as overly obscure, overly complicated. They thought more simple, down-to-earth approaches were better. Mm-hmm. So Ellis began to reject psychoanalysis. And he looked around, he thought, like many people that, you know, that I admire in life, Ellis thought, I'm going to scrap the whole thing and start again from scratch. Like he swept everything off the table. I mean, I'm going to forget this isn't working for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to stop kind of rearranging the deck chairs and the Titanic. I'm going to scrap the entire thing and start again from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And he thought, what can I look to for inspiration? And he remembered that he'd read the Stoics, he'd read Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus. He never mentioned having read Seneca, actually. Uh, he'd read them as a teenager. And so he started developing an approach to psychotherapy that was inspired by Stoicism in some ways, you know. Like, mm-hmm. you know uh, but the, 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 the little part of REBT, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, he called his approach, The bit that was inspired by Stoicism happens to be the fundamental premise of the whole thing. It's the kind of seed, like the foundation on which everything else is built. And we call it the cognitive theory of emotion. Uh, Ellis called it the ABC model of emotion. So it's really the idea that our emotions are shaped by underlying beliefs. We call this also the cognitive revolution in psychotherapy, where people started to say, Maybe feelings and thoughts aren't separate things. Maybe they're kind of interconnected in ways mm-hmm. that we hadn't fully appreciated before. And that's summed up in a famous quote from Epictetus. It says, it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. So Ellis would quote that to all of his students. He quoted it in most of his books, to his trainees. And so that became a cliche. That quote from Epictetus became a cliche in the field of psychotherapy. Everybody had heard that a million times, mm-hmm. but it describes the fundamental theoretical premise of the whole approach. It describes the cognitive theory of emotion. So cognitive therapists ended up arriving at similar conclusions to the Stoics. The Stoics had been doing this 2,300 years earlier.
0: Oh, so in that sense, Donald, that's kind of what drew you into Stoicism, just through the nature of studying um, CBD and psychotherapy. It just led to it as it evolved.
1: I've been studying philosophy like when I'd been when I was at university initially doing philosophy, I like I, I'd already read Freud and stuff. I read very widely, so I would read a lot of self help books, and I was um, I was into Buddhism. Like uh, I went in Buddhist retreats. So I used to practice Buddhist meditation. Mm-hmm. I studied history of Buddhism as part of my philosophy degree, and history of Hinduism as well. And uh, I was looking for a way to combine three things: philosophy, psychotherapy, and Uh, meditation, other like self-hypnosis, other psychological self-help techniques and I couldn't figure out, these are my three interests, and I felt like I was juggling these three balls and they didn't quite kind of fit together neatly somehow and uh, usually one of the odd things about stoicism is that it's one of the few major schools of classical philosophy that you don't normally study on a Undergraduate philosophy degree. Mm-hmm. So, I had studied some Greek philosophy at university. I'd studied Plato and Aristotle. I'd never studied the Stoics. And then when I graduated, I started to kind of look back at uh, other stuff that I'd, o- I'd overlooked previously. And I was kind of struggling to try and bring my interests together. I was looking at existential philosophy as a way of combining philosophy and psychotherapy because the existentialists tried mm-hmm. to get into psychotherapy. But their approach just doesn't resonate with me. It seemed too theoretical, too technical, too complex. It didn't seem workable. Because at the same time, I was working with, um, like, working-class kids in South London in schools. And then I'd go and read Jean-Paul Sartre, and I I thought, I can't connect these two things. Like, this approach seems too abstract, too pretentious in a way. Like, for me to relate it to, like, 15-year-old kids that are, you know, like living in a council estate in in London and telling me Mm. about their, you know, and I I could relate to their problems because I'd grown up in a, a, you know, I had a relatively poor kind of rough working class background. So I related to the environment that they were in, but I couldn't connect it to the type of therapy that I was studying. And then I, I came across the Stoics and I immediately recognized that the Stoics combined philosophy, psychotherapy, and also these contemplative, Practices uh, that we use in self-help. There are many meditation techniques, like the view from above, and so on, and stoicism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I remember having this kind of weird feeling of relief, like that it was like there were three pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that just suddenly now locked together. And uh, I remember almost jokingly thinking, you know, I don't need to read as many books now because I was reading all these books on psychotherapy and self-help and philosophy and I had this huge library and I thought, well, this is cool. I just need to read one bunch of books now because it covers all of these three things. And I never looked back, you know, I guess, how, how old would I be? Um, this was fairly early on. It was just after I, I graduated from university. So, I don't know, I was like 21 or 22 or, or something like that, I guess, roughly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I guess I would never have imagined that uh, in my late 40s I would still be completely immersed in the same subject Mm -hmm. because when I was a young guy you know you kind of go from one favorite philosopher to another and you jump around and get into this and then next week you're into something else and I just assumed that that would continue but one day I discovered stoicism and it's clicked and I thought this is the thing that I've been looking for and -hmm. I've never looked back from it since.
0: So I, I guess I have two questions for you here, Donald. Um, first one is something you pointed out, is how stoicism wasn't regularly studied in the universities. And I can add the similar experience going to school too. Like I never heard about stoicism at the university until after online. And uh, I guess the first part of that question is, why do you think stoicism isn't studied in the universities? And then the second part of that is, what exactly what is stoicism to the modern uh, person?
1: Okay. I've got a cool answer to your first question, I think you'll like this answer. Right? The reason that Stoicism, I believe, isn't taught in undergraduate philosophy degrees, and it's not usually covered as a postgraduate subject, I couldn't find anyone in a, a postgraduate. One of the other reasons I didn't do a PhD is I wanted to do it after a while in Stoicism, I couldn't find anyone that would supervise it. Like, because people kept telling me they didn't have anyone in their philosophy departments that knew anything about it. So, like, that's another like, weird thing about it. Um, why isn't it taught? Because if you ask academic philosophers, this is what they'll say. They'll say that the Stoics didn't come up with any original theoretical concepts. They took ideas that were already established by Plato and Aristotle, and all that the Stoics did was to develop the practical application of those ideas to daily life, so why on earth would anybody care about that? That's what they'll say. Mm -hmm. So the reason that they are not interested in stoicism is precisely the reason, ironically, that everybody else is interested in it, right? Because what everyone else wants is something that takes ideas from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and develops the practical application of it in everyday life. Mm-hmm. But academic philosophers just say, "Well, why would anyone care about that? Like, you know, we, you know, like we'd rather just study the the ideas, the concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not really interested in how you would apply them or how you would use it as a to overcome uh, unhealthy emotions as a therapy or anything like that." Um, that's of no interest to us. And, and actually, weirdly, the Stoics would say, what's the point of doing philosophy, in a sense, if it doesn't help you to live a better life? And they got that from Socrates, you know, who's a, you know, really the, the most iconic figure in, in the Western philosophical tradition. You know, that's how far we strayed from the original Socratic ideal of philosophy. Socrates, without a shadow of doubt, would have said, you know, it, it's integral to philosophy that it makes you a better person and helps you to live a better life, to live more wisely. Mm -hmm. Because modern philosophers would say, why should we care about that? Like, most of them would say it's not even worth studying it. Like, you know, we're only interested in looking at original philosophical arguments and concepts, and the Stoics don't have enough of those.
0: So it it kind of went from, um, like, the reason why it wasn't studied is because it was more theory that they wanted, and not like actual practical you know, yeah. embodying the Stoic philosophy and living it in everyday life. Yeah, that's generally
1: how they. I think people are starting to. I hope. I think. You know, some philosophers are beginning to rethink that and become more interested in the practical side of things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mean, I'll give you a weird example of that. Applied ethics didn't really exist as a subject until you know a few decades ago, and and that's a big thing now in philosophy departments. So even just kind of thinking, how would like the philosophical study of ethics, how would that actually apply to to real everyday social and political problems? Mm. You know, that wasn't really something that philosophers vexed themselves about that much until fairly recently. Um, And I'm kind of hopeful that more philosophy departments will begin to engage with the idea of philosophy as a way of life. It's so strange, because if you read not just Socrates, but most of the ancient Greek and Roman philosophers, it it, it's, they feel very strongly that that's the whole point of the entire subject
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i totally agree too like with philosophies i don't really see the point if you're not gonna actually utilize it in real life right like you could think about it or you could actually walk through your life and actually use it like what, what, what is it made for right but uh, i guess the second part of that question donald is what is stoicism to the modern right,
1: Okay, so I'll give you the very brief historical thing um, is that Stoicism is a school of Greek philosophy that was founded in 300 BC by a Phoenician merchant called Zeno of Mm Citium, And then we've lost most of the writings. We we have maybe, a rough guess, less than 1% of the Stoic writings survive today. And so the main Stoic writings that we have are from, Stoicism lasted for about 500 years in the ancient world, far longer. Than uh, you might argue, Marxism or psychoanalysis lasted in the modern world. Mm-hmm. Psychoanalysis is pe- people see Freud as one of the great minds of the 20th century, but his approach was popular for like maybe half a century, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Like Stoicism flourished for 500 years, like a long time, and it still cast its shadow over Christianity and other traditions that followed. So it was a long tradition, and but we only have writings from it started in Greece, and then, it, you know, Rome became the, the dominant force in the Mediterranean, and the, the 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 seat of philosophy moved there. And so, it's Roman Stoics that we have more writings from, particularly Seneca, Epictetus, and the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who also, by a weird coincidence, in a way, although Marcus Aurelius is the most powerful Stoic and the most famous Stoic, he's also virtually the last Stoic. We hear virtually nothing about Stoic philosophers after, like Marcus Aurelius's time, except mm. that it influences Christianity, and then it, it, it resurfaces during the Renaissance, um, many centuries later. For instance, mm. so that's what the, a, a bit of the history. So, what did these guys actually believe? Well, my take on Stoicism is that it's a Socratic sect, right? There's different ways of interpreting it. So, I see the Stoics as very much uh, in. Like, see Sto- Socrates is the grandfather, like, the godfather of, of Stoicism, and the Stoics is very heavily influenced by him. That's not as obvious in Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, but it's pretty explicitly stated in Epictetus. Epictetus goes on and on about Socrates more than anyone else, and he repeatedly tells his students that they should attempt to emulate Socrates like, and become like him. So I think it's fairly clear that the Stoics, at least some of the Stoics, saw themselves as very much in the Socratic tradition. Mm. And so the central principle, which they derive from Socrates, is this idea that virtue is the only true good. So the the argument, the best argument for that actually is in a Socratic dialogue, uh, one of Plato's dialogues called the Euthydemus. In that dialogue, Socrates argues about uh, what constitutes good fortune and his interlocutor, he, Socrates usually asks a sort of dumb question at the beginning, so what's good, like a no-brainer question. So he'll say, you know, what is good fortune? And the guy he's talking to says, well, having lots of money, being good looking, having loads of powerful friends, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's, it's not rocket science, Socrates, like, anyone could, these are all, anyone would give you the same answers, right? Um, being healthy and like, fit and all, all this kind of stuff, and uh, having a powerful... Uh, status and like noble birth to the Athenians would be a great thing you know that's all good for us that's what everybody wants in life right and then Socrates says well let's go through those one at a time he says let's pick wealth first of all he says "Uh, so wealth seems like it's good but surely if you give lots of money to somebody who's vicious and stupid they're just going to do bad stupid things with it they're going to blow it all and like stupid things it's like that joke that people say about coffee it allows you to do stupid things more quickly or whatever with more energy like socrates kind of says like money just allows you to do more stupid things more quickly like you know it gives you more opportunity to do vicious and you know evil things or or foolish things but in the hands of a good person it gives them more opportunity to do wise and 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 just things perhaps right Mm -hmm. so he says i think you're confusing opportunity with something that's intrinsically good. And, you know, Socrates then goes on to say, this is true of all the other goods that you've named. Like, they're only actually good in the hands of a good person, but in the hands of a vicious dictator, for example, having lots of powerful friends or having an important position in life would be bad things, Mm -hmm. like, because they would use them to do bad stuff, right? And so this, as always in the Socratic dialogues, leaves his interlocutor kind of confused, disorientated. And Socrates basically leads to the conclusion like, well, if the thing thing essentially that makes all of these other things worth having is the wisdom to be able to use them well, then surely that's intrinsically the only good in life and everything else is of secondary importance at best, right? And that's the essence of Stoic philosophy, that external goods like health, wealth and reputation aren't really intrinsically good at all, they just give us the opportunity to exercise our character more, to have more control over our environment. But whether we use them for good or evil depends on our character. And so the Stoics say virtue or having an enlightened, morally enlightened character is therefore the only intrinsically good thing. But we kind of lose sight of that in life because we look around us as kids and we see everyone else chasing after health, wealth, reputation, all these external goods. And we don't realize that there's something hidden inside us that actually is the thing that, the only truly valuable thing, the only thing that gives all those externals value.
2: Mm.
1: And the only thing that could really ruin all of those externals and spoil them for us would be having a foolish and, and vicious character. So the Stoics talk a lot about virtue, but what they mean by virtue, I should explain, is also really a, they have an intellectual theory or cognitive theory of virtue, which they derive again from Socrates. And so this is the idea that all of the virtues are primarily or fundamentally states of knowledge or wisdom so the greek word arete which we translate as virtue i think actually i tend to prefer to translate it as moral wisdom Mm -hmm. because that would be closer to what they're actually talking about and by the way i believe um that this isn't often mentioned but i think one of the main reasons that socrates um was executed like one of the most controversial, Socrates did many controversial things, and one of the most controversial things that he did was, he was, from a kind of lower middle class family, like, um, but he has an education, and uh, we're told by Diogenes Laertius that it was his childhood friend Crito, who was a, a wealthy uh, landowner, um, who had grown up with Socrates. Mm -hmm. He paid for Socrates to leave his job and dedicate himself to studying. So he had a wealthy patron. Now, this upset the apple cart in ancient Athens because it seems that Socrates had the kind of education that would normally only be accessible to uh, an Athenian aristocrat or someone from a wealthy family, right? And then not only that, but he went around and ruined that for all these posh Athenians, all these Athenian aristocrats by sharing his wisdom with random people, like everybody in the Agora, in the marketplace, that'd be like a shopping mall, Mm. right? Socrates went out on the street and talked to everybody about philosophy. He hung about in shops, talking to one of his best friends, which was Simon the Shoemaker, and Socrates would sit and talk to him about philosophy. He did philosophy, we're told, with women, immigrants, slaves, and a dwarf like <laughs> and so like a real mixed bag of people and that's important because to the ancient Athenians the place where they did philosophy the gymnasia which were these um, like a sports ground mm. um, women weren't allowed anywhere near them and most of them were reserved for Athenian citizens male Athenians mm. um, so they were kind of exclusive like areas and that's where people went to discuss culture and philosophy. And Socrates went there, listened to the sophists, and then wandered off and started talking about the stuff that he'd learned with random people in the street, prostitutes. Like, even the fact he was doing philosophy with women was controversial at the time, yeah? And what's implicit in that is another shocking idea to ancient Athenians. The ancient Athenian nobles believed that virtue, what makes somebody a good person, was kind of hereditary, like, that it was to do with noble birth, which was really important to them. And Socrates blew that apart by arguing that virtue is really a form of moral wisdom, and therefore it's teachable right and if it's teachable <laughs> maybe anybody could learn it maybe you don't have to be athenian or rich or aristocratic right because he wasn't um and maybe women and slaves and foreigners and like you know a big part of this actually for the athenians weirdly which we would, we would seem odd to us today i mean we'd go all right so like even like you know immigrants and women so he's, there's these kind of um, issues about egalitarianism and so on, but a, an aspect of it, strangely, that would seem quite odd to us today, is that Socrates, one of the things that made Socrates seem so strange to Athenians, when you look at s- ancient Greek sculptures, right, mm-hmm. most of them you'll notice celebrate the male form, right? So they, they have these sculptures of male athletes that are like uh, Adonises, right? So this is a big thing in Greek culture. But Socrates was ugly, right? And the, the Greeks thought that was weird, right? They thought, how can this guy be noble? Yeah. Right? When he looks like, he just looks ugly, right? Plato says that Socrates had a face like a torpedo fish, <laughs> and Xenophon, his other student, said that Socrates had eyes like a crab. Right so they, they they and they talk a lot, they're obsessed with this idea that he was this kind of podgy, balding middle-aged like guy that they thought looked very different from what they considered to be the ideal of Athenian beauty, so apart from the fact that he was doing philosophy with with women and foreign immigrants and stuff like the just the very fact that they thought he looked he didn't look like, you know, the god Apollo or something, he didn't look like an Adonis, was kind of unsettling to them. I think one of the odd things about Socrates, I like to say, is that they they call him atopos, which kind of means weird and out of place, like he didn't belong. But he's also the quintessential Athenian. Like, Socrates completely embodies and personifies classical Athenian culture, but at the same time, ironically, it's like he's an alien like he doesn't really belong there and he was upsetting the whole kind of social system at the same time and that's partly it. it doesn't surprise me at all that he had to go like he was bound he was dynamite to them right Nietzsche the philosopher Nietzsche called Socrates a monster like he would have seemed to the Athenians to many of them like someone that was just completely turning their society up the idea that he was wandering about Teaching philosophy to random people in the street, I think, seemed quite disturbing to them. And then this idea that virtue was something that you could learn. Like, and and then that the he would be going around teaching that to people. Then you get Diogenes the Cynic who takes it even further. And everyone knows this famous anecdote about Diogenes. Uh, Socrates, uh, Plato, who didn't like Diogenes reputedly, called him Socrates gone mad. He said, you're like Socrates gone crazy, like, like you're like Socrates, but even more extreme, Diogenes. Uh, But the other story is that uh, Diogenes went to Plato's house one day and Plato had a a, a fine rug on his floor and Diogenes wiped his dirty feet on it and he said, thus I trample on Plato's vanity, (laughs) right, because he thought Plato was pretentious, right? He thought he was, he was too kind of bookish. Plato went back to the gymnasia, like, you know, back out of the Agora, right? And the Stoics wanted, I think the Stoics wanted to return to the original Socratic ideal. Like, right? they took philosophy back into the Agora. The, the Stoa poikoli is, you know, we say, oh, it's the Stoic school. They had this kind of porch. The porch is on the edge of the Agora. That's the point, right? It was fa- it's like an arcade. Like right? It's facing this um, like marketplace, right? Uh, back, they went. Part of the point of that is they went back to where Socrates was doing philosophy out in the street,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and anyone could come and and debate philosophy with Zeno. And Zeno himself was an immigrant; like he didn't have uh, Athenian citizenship. So again, the the you know Stoicism originates out of this kind of upsetting the social order to some extent. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, yeah, Diogenes says to Alexander, Alexander the Great comes along allegedly. And uh, he says, is there anything I can do for you? Because reputedly he admired Diogenes. And Diogenes said, just one thing, can you step out of the way you're blocking the sunlight? <laughs> uh, and there's, there's all sorts of deep symbolism and, and, and irony uh, in this. Um, but, you know, really, Diogenes, part of this tradition is the idea that if we can become self-sufficient, And enlightened Mm -hmm. then we don't and if we don't if we can rule over ourselves like Seneca said the greatest empire is to to become an, an emperor over oneself right the part one of the deep paradoxes of the Socratic cynic stoic tradition is this idea that maybe Diogenes was more regal than Alexander the Great maybe Alexander the Great was a slave to his own passions even though he was the most powerful man in the world, you know, the later tradition, my daughter likes this story, Julius Caesar, who many subsequent generations admired as a great conqueror. The story goes that Caesar came across in a town once a statue of Alexander the Great and threw his arms around the legs and broke into tears because he thought he would never be able to emulate the achievements of Alexander the Great. So for. Good or for worse, Alexander became this iconic figure in the ancient world of somebody whose achievements. He got all the way to India, like the Romans couldn't really kind of make much uh, headway into into uh, the Middle East, into into Parthia, Persia, um, and so they thought he's always kind of outdone us, outclassed us. We'll never be as great as Alexander was. We're never going to catch up with the achievements of this Greek, right? Mm. And uh, and yet. Like in a sense, to the philosophers, Diogenes was more of a hero, like who just sat around naked outside of Athens and didn't need anything, right? And the story goes that, that there's all these little anecdotes that are probably not historically true, right? But we can, you know, we can hope they would be cool if they were. Um, but the story goes that someone said to Alexander, uh, "This guy this guy's a clown, you know. This Diogenes guy he's just a joker, or whatever." And somebody said to uh, to Alexander, you know, uh, you know, making light of it. And Alexander said, "Listen, if I wasn't Alexander the Great, I could be anybody else. I'd want to be him, mm-hmm. All right? Because he's free. Like, like he's he's kind of like he's a, he's achieved something. Like he's liber he's completely liberated himself. He's the, like the Stoics would say." Um, that, uh, you know, to be enslaved is to want more than you have, right? And anybody who wants less than he has, right, is going to be free. It's going to be like an emperor, a king. And they thought, Diogenes didn't need anything. Whereas Alexander had the whole world, but he always wanted more. So he was always subordinate. He was always enslaved to his own desires. So I think... uh, this paradox is important to, to understand. The, the the Stoics thought we're all looking in the wrong direction, mm. right? We're all, we're all kind of like trying to kind of get our self esteem from external achievement. We're you know we're all trying to achieve these things that sit in the outside world well, that are never entirely under our control. Mm. Um, the other legend about Alexander was that when he was dying, he said he wanted a special coffin made with holes in the side, and he said, "I want you to to have my my, my arms hanging out." Right, so that the tradition was when a king uh, died or a ruler died that their body would be carried through various towns so that people could come out and they could grieve and they could see the the body being carried around like it was almost a, a sacred object. He said, "I want to carry around my arms hanging out the side of the coffin," and his friend said, in general, said, "Why do you want us to do that?" And he goes, "Like we say today, you know, you can't take it all with you because I want them to see I'm leaving empty-handed, right?" But then none of this really means anything at the end of the day you know you can't take it you can't take any of it with you But I'm leaving just as empty-handed as I, as I came into the world and that reminds me if there's any truth at, at all it kind of seems to hark back to this idea of Diogenes being the one like, who embraced his empty-handedness Diogenes reputedly had very little he said everything I have I can fit in my little knapsack and that's all that I need but you know the story goes that once he saw a little boy, uh, Diogenes had uh, a, a, a cup, and uh, he saw this little boy cupping his hands and drinking water like that. And Diogenes grabbed his cup and smashed it. And he said, "This this little boy's outdone me. He's outclassed me. He doesn't even need a cup. like He <laughs> he was an extreme kind of anarchist minimalist. Yeah. You know, like he thought." Uh, you know, you, any possessions you have just kind of weigh you down sort of thing. All these cliches that we have today, we can refer them back to Greek philosophers that, that went there first. Mm-hmm. And so the Stoics thought, well, they thought there needed to be a compromise between Diogenes's position and Plato's position. Um, Diogenes and Plato were usually in the ancient world seen as kind of opposites and the, the generation after Socrates uh, representing opposite conceptions of philosophy as a way of life. Mm -hmm. So Plato was much more academic. Like this, we get the term "academic" from the from Plato's Academy. So we use "academic" to mean sort of overly bookish, overly scholarly, and that's partly because that's what Plato's Academy was known for being like. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, I think that the Stoics thought there needed to be a middle ground, and it seems to me although they don't really explicitly state this as as far as I know, but I think it's implicit in their writings that they looked at Plato and they looked at Diogenes and Zeno and the other early Stoics thought that Diogenes wasn't interested in logic or studying metaphysics or anything like that, he just thought philosophy was about developing your character and moral integrity. And I think the Stoics thought maybe there's room for both, like maybe it's virtuous to study metaphysics and to study logic, but only insofar as that helps to make you a better person. And if you studied it beyond that, it would just be vanity. Like Diogenes said, that's I trample on Plato's vanity, mm-hmm. right? So Plato had kind of, like, the stuff he was doing was valuable, but he'd kind of lost sight of the purpose of it, mm-hmm. like, it was just intellectualism for its own sake. Like it, was, it had become arid, whereas Diogenes was like a Luddite or something, like, you know, they thought you can't just say, you can't make a virtue out of ignorance, right? There is a value to studying logic and, and learning about nature and metaphysics and stuff like that. But you're right that Plato's probably taking it too far. So the, the Stoics often want this kind of compromise, and this is why you see Marcus Aurelius, one of the nerdiest people in history, right? One of the, a, a very bookish guy, right, the nerdy emperor right? That was kind of how he was perceived. But in the meditations, you'll notice, he often says, cast away your books. Why? Like, and he's telling himself not to become overly dependent on them. Seneca says it's better to read a handful of books and know them inside out why, like, than just be skipping about from one subject to another all of the time and not really digesting the things that you're learning. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a, a stoic idea that they want us to be like Diogenes, but not too much like that they want us to be able to take from the logic and the the physics of Plato and the other philosophers, but not like treat that as an end in itself.
0: So so Donald, when it uh, comes to the three Stoics, uh, Seneca, I guess the three big Stoics, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, um, what, what made you decide to write about Marcus Aurelius in particular?
1: Well, that's easy because, you know, um, can i tell you this story like my publisher said to me we'd like you to write a book about stoicism right and i said well first of all i've already written a bunch of books about stoicism and secondly there's loads of books when i first got into stoicism there were hardly any books on it it was such a weird subject to get into and people thought i was crazy for getting into this really obscure thing and i never dreamed that like 10 years later or like less than that it would be like a trendy thing almost and i'd walk into like I'd go into a bar or a hairdresser's or something and I'd meet random people and I'd turn around and they're reading Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle's The Way and, you know, other books about stoicism and stuff. That that would be inconceivable to me when I was in my early 20s. I thought, like, I'm the only person that's interested in this, really. You know, it's like an obscure thing. Um, so, gosh, what was the question? <laughs> I'm, I'm,
0: but when it comes to Marcus Aurelius, like... What why mean? did we get
1: to Marcus Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My publisher said, write, write a book about um, Stoicism, and I said, well, there's lots of books coming out now, all of a sudden, right? and I've already written about this subject. So I thought, again, is there a compromise? Is there, is there a yes and no to this? Mm-hmm. Could I write about Stoicism, but do it in a very different way? And it seemed obvious to me that the way to do that was to write about Stoicism, but focus on the life of a particular historical individual. In the ancient world philosophy was taught through essays and dialogues but it was also taught through actually through satires and anecdotes one of our main sources for the stoics is the lives and opinions of eminent philosophers by diogenes laertius which is a collection of anecdotes um, largely about various ancient philosophers and so we don't really do that as much today certainly not in academic philosophy but also because i have a young daughter i talk talked to her about Diogenes the Cynic and like the anecdote I told you earlier is probably one of the most famous examples of an anecdote about a famous philosopher. We have no writings from Diogenes the Cynic. The only things we know about him are these weird little stories that try to make a a philosophical point. And so being aware of that I thought well nobody's really done that. We could talk about the life of a Stoic and tell little anecdotes and illustrations. and, And also that appealed to me because I think it might be worth saying there are many misconceptions that people have about stoicism, and uh, you know you can argue with people till you're blue in the face and say that's not what the Stoics say. I notice on online in particular, you're talking to people. No, you know, no, I don't know if you've noticed this. No one ever changes their opinion on Facebook, mm. or you know, when they're having kind of debates about like philosophy and stuff. Like it, hardly anyone ever seems to change their mind in any of these discussions, right? But a much easier way to persuade people and get around the misconceptions is if you, rather than debating what the texts say or the implications of the philosophical theory, is if you actually just point to an example. So people think that stoicism would mean being completely passive and being a doormat and accepting everything. Right, so you can argue with them about, well, that's not what this philosophy teaches, and that's not what the texts say, but that tends to go round and round and round in circles. But if you go, hang on a minute, let me let me get one. Here's one I made earlier, right? Here's a Stoic, Marcus Aurelius or Cato or whoever, right? Well, so, these guys weren't doormats. Like, as a matter of historical fact, like Marcus Aurelius was a workaholic. and he he famously, he led the Roman Empire through one of the toughest periods in its history. They were invaded by Parthia, first of all, or like one of their client states was, and then the Roman Empire was invaded by this huge coalition of Germanic tribes, like hundreds of thousands uh, uh, of what they would call barbarians, right? And it was during the time of the Antonine Plague, which was Oh, it's like ten a hundred times worse than the pandemic that we're. This is, the, the pandemic that we're living through is is nothing, is a walk in the park, yeah. like compared to the Antonine. For a start, it went on for like about ten or fifteen years, right? Five million people died, um, in the in Rome, in the throughout the empire, I should say. So, like, he wasn't just kind of oh, you know, I'll just sit back. He didn't say when the Marcomanni invaded and the, the other Roman, uh, Germanic tribes invaded uh, the northern frontier and all the way across the Alps, down into Italy, and they besieged a Roman city called Aquileia. Marcus didn't say, well, I guess I should just accept it mm. and, and do nothing. He, with no military training whatsoever, which is unusual for a Roman noble at that time, he felt he donned the military cape and boots, as one of the historians said, and rode out of Rome to take command of a hundred and forty thousand men and the massed along the, the Roman frontier, and he fought a war that went on and off and on for a, around, around about a decade. Um, so he was—he uh, was a tough guy in a sense. He was like a tough nerd that's really straight. Like he was a very physically frail man. Cassius Dio, the historian. Um, says this was a strange paradox. But Marcus, he was incredibly sickly and physically frail guy, but he he also outlived a lot of much more robust seeming people, and he was a, a tough, a sickly but tough guy. You know, he went to Austria, like he went to, um, to Serbia in the modern in modern day terms, into this cold climate, this tough climate and uh, lived in the legionary camps and took command of of the army. Uh, Something that Commodus, his son, wouldn't do. He was scared to do it. He bailed. But his (laughs) father, who was uh, coughing up blood and stuff, was uh, uh, was willing to put himself in in harm's way. So this idea that Stoics are kind of passive, stay-at-home types, doormats, whatever, just doesn't square. Not only with the example of Marcus, but other famous historical Stoics like Cato, like, uh, you know the, the the stoic opposition, for example, mm. and then the other idea that the Stoics are just kind of unemotional, like they're like Mister Spock in Star Trek, or like robots or whatever, cold fish. Um, that's a misinterpretation of Stoicism. And again, you can see that. You know, the the thing that illustrates that quite well is Mark. We have a, not only the Meditations, but we have a, a cache of private letters that Marcus Aurelius wrote to his rhetoric tutor, Marcus Cornelius Fronto. And uh, you can see that he's a regular guy, right, he loves his family, um, he's, he's a very, actually compared to, to people today, Marcus Aurelius is much more affectionate, like, people read those letters, they think, well, like, he always tells his friends how much he loves them, like, he's got this burning desire to see them again, he really, really misses them and stuff like, you know, he's much more expressive of affection than most guys would be today. Mm-hmm. Right. So he, he's not like a robot, like, or like Mr. Spock. So that that idea gets blown out of the water if you look at an actual flesh and blood historical stoic. Mm-hmm. So that was why one of the other reasons that I wanted to pick an example and why Marcus Aurelius is because he was a big deal back in the day. And so we know more about him. At first, I thought maybe Zeno. Right. We could write about Zeno. And I thought, well, we don't know that much about him and the information we have is unreliable. But because Marcus Aurelius at the other end, 500 years later, almost, um, at the other end of the, the, the spectrum historically, uh, he's the last famous stoic, but he's the famous stoic about whom we know the most because we have several surviving histories of his reign. We even have archaeological evidence. For instance, Marcus in the Meditations writes at Carnuntum, at one point, which is a Roman legionary camp in modern-day Austria by the banks of the, the river Danube and at Carnuntum, I went there and interviewed the, the director of archaeology there, they found uh, a gravestone, a stelle, um of a praetorian, like uh, the emperor's personal guard, who died in 171 a- AD. Um, so we know from archaeological evidence that almost certainly Marcus was at canuntum in 171 AD, from the fact they dug up this stone I and mean, they you know a Praetorian died here in
0: mm-hmm. that year,
1: maybe from the plague. Right, that that stone with the date on it tells us the emperor was probably there because a member of his personal guard was there. Right, the guy wow. died in that year, so it's cool. Like do, we don't often get like real clear cut like bits of archaeological dug up from the ground like that mm. um, but that confirms what's in the, the meditation Like, so that tells us yeah the Emperor was definitely here at one point and he was probably here in 171 AD which is roughly when we think like, around the time we think the meditations was being written as well mm. right so we we have archaeological evidence evidence from coins and inscriptions and then these actual histories Herodian, Historia Augusta, Cassius Dio describing Marcus's reign and also Marcus does this weird thing like the the bit of the meditations that people often are least interested in is the bit I'm most interested in which is book one where he which is kind of a preface we believe it may have been written at a different time perhaps later than the rest of the meditations and kind of pegged on the beginning mm. but it, in it Marcus talks about the qualities he most admires in about 16 17 different individuals Um, and they're all family members or teachers basically but so he tells us how he perceives, it's weird because we don't know that much about the lives of some of these people in fact one or two of them we have no idea really who they were but he tells us what he thinks of their character which is quite odd so we have this very personal kind of internal psychological perception of historical figures Mm -hmm. And so we can weave all that, to write a story about this now, Um, Antoninus Pius is the person he tells us most about. So we know not only a lot about Antoninus Pius, who's the preceding emperor and Marcus's adopted father from Roman history, um, but we also know a lot about how Marcus perceived him. Right? Now, weirdly, in that book, one of the meditations, we also learn something from what's missing. Marcus says nothing. the Emperor Hadrian who is his adoptive grandfather and actually the guy who selected Marcus. So Hadrian said I want Antoninus Pius to be my successor and then after you, right? you're being appointed my successor on condition that after you that kid becomes the next emperor. So Hadrian had a long-term succession plan and part of it was Marcus Aurelius. He saw him as a child and said he's too young now to be emperor but I want him to become emperor after you, Antoninus, after I point, you. And yet Marcus never mentions him in book one of the, the meditations. And he does mention him two or three times later in the book, but only in passing as an example of how transient human life is. So I think later in life, Marcus thought it was weird that he'd be talking maybe to a young officer, a tribune in the army, and they they talk about Hadrian, and they'd never met Hadrian. Like they would talk about Hadrian as someone that they saw in uh, a statue of, mm-hmm. or they they read about. Oh, I read the other day about one of like about Hadrian and what he did with the the army and stuff. Like I used to know him. Like I knew him when I was a kid, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but you've only heard stories about him, and you've seen. You, when you think of Hadrian, you think of statues. Like I remember what he was like in person. So he meditates on this like this guy's just a a ghost now like he's a name in the history books and he says at one point in the meditation something really odd he says some of these names have a weird flavor to them a ring to them like they sound archaic they sound old-fashioned because like hadrian's name is associated with like we talk about the victorian era in england Mm -hmm. right he says it sounds anachronistic, like it sounds old-fashioned because i used to know him (laughs) like, <laughs> and so he, 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 he immerses his mind in these meditations, right? To remind us and then he but then he says to himself, And one one day that's gonna be me. Right? One day people will talk about the reign of Marcus Aurelius, really like and they'll they'll be looking at statues of me and reading about me in history books, maybe. But then one day those books will all be destroyed and they'll be gone and I'll be forgotten about completely, right? He goes, But it won't be long before I will just be a statue mm-hmm. like or a tomb. Like just like People now, it's weird that people talk about Hadrian's tomb and stuff. Like, you know? And that that made him more acutely aware of his own mortality. Mm. Yeah, but he he never mentions Hadrian. But he, um, I don't think he liked Hadrian very much. And the odd thing is, everything that he says about Antoninus Pius, um, all, most of the things he says sound to me like uh, implicit criticisms of Hadrian like so he says all the things he admires about Antoninus Pius he heaps praise on him in great detail several times in that book but he uh almost after each one of them I have to go back and reread it and check but you can try this as an experiment after virtually everything he says about Antoninus Pius you can have him imagine in brackets saying unlike Hadrian mm-hmm. so he says no one would ever accuse Antoninus Pius of being a sophist unlike Hadrian you could imagine he's saying because Hadrian was famously like a sophist, like he surrounded himself with sophists, right? Mm. So all, all the things he praises Antoninus for are, are, are things that you could criticise Hadrian for, for being the opposite of. Hadrian wasn't a terrible, terrible emperor, but towards the end of his reign, he was known for having kind of secret police, like spies everywhere, and he uh, executing people like that he was concerned about. He became very paranoid. He had ten patantrums. Galen... Marcus Aurelius's court physician, says that one day Hadrian lost his temper uh, with a slave and he was writing with a metal, Hadrian was using a metal stylus, um, I guess a little bit like a fountain pen today, the Romans would dip these metal things in ink and write with them. Mm-hmm. And so he, this was what he had in his hand at the time, he stabbed the guy in the eye with it.
2: Right.
1: And uh-huh. it's a huge temper tantrum. And the other, I guess the Roman nobles around were like, whoa! You know, they were kind of freaked out by this. So, Hadrian, um, the Stoics say that the, um, one of the markers of a, a neurotic, like someone who's, who lacks wisdom, is that they they go back and forth. Uh, Chrysippus says their emotions are flutter like a butterfly. So, Hadrian then felt ashamed of what he'd done, right? And, you know, embarrassed about it because everybody was looking at him like he was some kind of monster. So, he went to the guy and said, listen, is there anything I can do to make it up for you? Again, weirdly, this is, sounds like the, the story with Diogenes and Alexander the Great. Is there anything that I can do for you? I'm the most powerful man in the world, mm-hmm. right? And this Diogenes, the cynic, like, lived like a slave. He, actually, Diogenes was a slave. He was captured by pirates and enslaved later in his uh-huh. life. So this, this dude is like Diogenes. And uh, Hadrian is like Alexander and he says, is there anything I can do for you? And the guy says, the only thing I want is my eye back. Like so the one thing that Hadrian could never give him.
2: Mm.
1: So like Galen's point is sometimes often the consequences of anger are irreparable. Like, even if you're the most powerful man in the world, this is one of the reasons that we have to be very cautious like about giving way to anger. Um, but I think Marcus looked at Hadrian and thought, I don't want to be like him, you know, I want to and he initially he didn't want to be emperor. Mm. Um but then he changed his mind, and I think he changed his mind because he saw Antoninus being a completely different type of emperor from Hadrian, and Marcus thought, if it's anything like be, being Hadrian, I don't, want, I don't want anything to do with that. But then he thought, actually, maybe I could see myself ruling like Antoninus. Like he got rid of all of the statues and the fine robes. He used to just go around dressed like a normal Roman citizen. Like he wasn't pretentious. He dispensed with some of his security at the palace. Like he tried to, to live like as close as he could to an ordinary life. And Marcus thought, well, if that's doable, then maybe you know I, I'm down for that. But I don't want I don't want all this kind of like pretentious nonsense like that was associated um, with imperial office under under Hadrian. Um, and so by reading book one, we can kind of piece together the, like uh, a picture of Marcus's life and character. And I'll tell you one. also there's something odd about the meditations. Like uh, it, it may be worth saying, you know, one of the reasons that people love the meditations is that it's, there's something, there are a number of actually quite odd things about the way that it's written that people often don't notice, right? So first of all, apart from the fact that he talks about these historical figures at the beginning, which he does also in a very odd way, because he doesn't say very, he says virtually nothing about their, about who they are. He uh, he names them and then talks a lot about their character. But there's this huge gap about, you know, well, what did they do during their reign? You know, what sort of people were they? Throughout the meditations, Marcus, reputedly writing it in the military camps on the banks of the Danube, engaged in this huge war, during the plague, says virtually nothing about these things, right? For example, one of the most famous passages in the Meditations is at the beginning of Book Two, where he now gets into the real substance of it. The first thing he says is, every morning when you wake up, tell yourself that you're going to meet people who are ungrateful, petty, like deceitful, like meddling, and so on, yeah? And you read that, I read that, and you think, who are these people, right? They could be anyone. They're every man, right? Mm -hmm. And I think naturally reading it, we then project ourselves into it. And we think, well, who are the people? And think, I don't know. Like, maybe the guy in the local corner shop was a bit ratty with me when he was giving me my change the other day or something like that, you know, or someone was a bit rude to me on the internet the other day or something, you know. We think a petty kind of trivial thing and we project ourselves into it. So it's weirdly anonymous and it allows us... But it's even more weirdly anonymous when you think, who was Marcus talking about? Was he talking about Commodus? Was he talking about... People that surrounded him at court. There were there was a civil war in Marcus's reign, right? And so you think it's really strange that he doesn't like he's just kind of he just says in general terms, oh, like you have to prepare yourself to deal with deceitful, treacherous people. He doesn't say there's an actual civil war brewing, like that could tear the empire apart. We've just been invaded by a bunch of Germanic tribes that have both broken their peace treaty with us and conspired against us for years behind our backs. like So none of you'd think, when you realize that, you think it is weird that he doesn't mention any of these historical details, but he phrases it in this very woolly, kind of anonymized way, and that draws people in. But also I think if we then imagine Marcus as a real flesh and blood human being and put him in his historical context and then take these and many other passages from the meditations, uh, I think we lose something, but we gain something. So we lose this abstractness that allows us to put ourselves in the story, but also, you know, it potentially gives his comments more meaning and makes them seem more relatable from another point of view, because we can picture him even more as a flesh and blood living example of a stoic. He says at one point that getting annoyed with bad people for doing vicious things, Uh, the Stoics have this thing about you shouldn't be shocked by things, you should be ready for everything, and it would be naive to think that you'll never get your wallet stolen in a a big city or something, or, you know, that no one's, you know, your car's never going to get scratched, or like, you know, you look around you and you think, what are the normal things that happen in life, and you should be ready for all of them, but people go, I can't believe this has happened. The Stoic sage should never say that. They should think, well, these things happen to other people. They're bound to to happen to me. And so he says, being upset with bad people for doing bad things would be like getting angry with babies for crying or getting annoyed with horses for neighing. Well, Marcus wrote that stationed in a military camp where there would have been thousands of horses stabled nearby, right? So again, you know, so often the remarks in the meditations, when you think about the historical context in which they're written, like it just kind of becomes more real. So I, I began to think about that more when I was working on my graphic novel because we realized we have to draw the environment that he's in. And the, the story of Marcus and the Meditations really does kind of change when you visualize the environment that he's writing it in and the things of He says at one point that becoming attached to external things would be like falling in love with a, a little sparrow that nests uh, by the river, and no sooner than you've been looking at it for a few moments than it flits off and it disappears over the horizon and it's gone. All material things are transient. Mm. And like oh, you shouldn't be crazy as transient as these little birds that you look at for a moment and then suddenly they disappear and they're gone. Well, by the Danube, like there are loads of these little birds singing and, and nesting. You know, so you go there and you realise. Yeah, of course. Like, he's talking about the stuff that he can see around him. He refers many times in the Meditations to this cliché in Greek philosophy of the river of time, which on the one hand is an abstract, clichéd metaphor for transience. He uses it a lot. Also, he was stationed by a big river like that was like a highway to the Romans. Um, it, you know, it dominated uh, his life during the war. The, the war went back and forth uh, across the river because it marked the, the frontier, the Danube. The Esther, as the Romans sometimes called it. Um, So I I wanted to, I felt that we could relate to Marcus more and extract more meaning from some of the things he was saying as well, if we visualized them in the historical context.
0: So I guess I have two more questions for you, Um, but uh, so this one is going to be kind of coming back to your book in Marcus Aurelius, but for you personally, Donald, um, like, how, how would you think like a Roman emperor on your end, like if you personally had to pull away one lesson that truly impacted you, what would you pull away from kind of your own book in that sense?
1: To me, and maybe this is my bias as a cognitive therapist, there's an idea that the academics don't talk about very much. To me, it seems to be the central psychological principle of stoicism. And it, it's an idea that's tricky. We don't have a good word for it. And it's a subtle nuanced idea that some people get immediately and then other people need to kind of work a little bit. But it's become a, a central principle in modern therapy. We call it cognitive distancing. And it's really the idea that our our thoughts and beliefs shape our perception of external events. and not. But normally we have a natural tendency to fuse the two things together. Mm-hmm. The best way I can think to describe this is the way that Aaron Beck, the founder of cognitive therapy, described it. He said, "Imagine that you wore rose tinted glasses all the time, or, or other people rose, wore rose tinted glasses. You're wearing such sort of shitty coloured glasses, or blue depressing glasses, or whatever, right? Um, and you never take them off. So after a while, you would just fuse it with reality, and you would think the world around you just looks blue." It's just the way it is. It is blue. Everything, you know, everything just looks like that. Because you've forgotten what it looked like when you took them off, right? But it's just a lens that you're looking through. It's kind of arbitrary. You could take them off and put on rose-tinted glasses if you wanted to. Um, infusion, as we call it in therapy, happens when people start to assume that the lens through which they're looking at is an external property. Like, So if I look at someone who does something to upset me and I think, like, she's a bitch, or he's a bastard, or, you know, like, that guy's an idiot. Like, this is just one way of, kind of, this is a value judgment. It's a way of framing things, right? Um, and what really loosens it up is the realization that other people might view it differently. So the Stoics really want to drive that message home. They say, remind yourself that other people might feel differently about the same situation. View it differently. What some, one person sees as a catastrophe, another person might see as an opportunity. Like, it's arbitrary, it's subjective, right? And so, this separate, Marcus calls it separation of thoughts from external events, um, I think, particularly separating our value judgments from external events. The Stoics want to say that no catastrophe exists in nature. Nature doesn't know what a catastrophe is. Like, nature, like the coronavirus, like, let's pick a good example, right? That's not a catastrophe as far as nature's concerned. Like nature doesn't know what a pandemic is. Like it just creates these viruses and they go around and they do their thing. And like the Stoics would say, birth and death are just natural processes in the eyes of nature. Like it's just rearranging atoms. Like it's stuff that happens. There's neither nature doesn't know creation or destruction. Like it just knows that things change. And then other things. Like you know, it's us that decide uh, whether it's good or bad or whether it should or shouldn't be that way. But that all comes from us right? We choose to see something as awful or catastrophic. And people might want to hang on to that. They might want to say, well, there are certain things that we we want to view as bad. But I think we should remember that the badness of these external events comes from us. It's something that we project onto the event. Because when we fuse the two things together, when we view something as inherently awful or inherently catastrophic, our emotional response tends to be rigid and stronger and more pathologic, more distressing right? But when we realize we're choosing to view it as a bad thing, then that gives us a certain amount of flexibility and control over our emotions. And it allows us to ask ourselves whether it's worth getting as upset, for instance, about things that we don't actually have any direct control over, or whether we might be better investing our our energy uh, in things that we do have leverage over, which is a more adaptive and more healthy uh, way of responding.
0: So so it's kind of just that separation and uh, taking the time to interpret how we see events.
1: Yeah, it's not, and it comes back, it's summed up in that saying of Epictetus, it's not things that upset us but our opinions about them.
0: Mm.
1: That's really grasping that, really seeing that, really understanding that would be cognitive distancing. And we know over the last 10, 15 years in therapy, there's been a, a lot of research that's demonstrated that this, when people grasp this idea, it's one of the most powerful uh processes uh in, in modern psychotherapy we know that from uh, from research in the subject
0: so i guess i know that your new book is coming out soon and you have your books out but for anyone listening uh, where can they go to check you out donald uh, on social media your new book coming up and uh, where to find you
1: well the, the, the book i'm working on won't be out for a while because it's graphic novels like that take quite a long time because the illustrations unfortunately so mm-hmm. maybe like late next year like the graphic novel will be out um but you can find all information um about all the other stuff that i do on my website which is just donaldrobertson.name so it's all one word it's just my name but not dot com it's dot name mm-hmm. and there's links there to all the social media stuff that i, I have and also e-learning courses that i run about stoicism and Greek philosophy, all kind of link to there as well.
0: And I'll have all the links in the description and cool. the show as well. And uh, I guess I just want to thank you so much, Donald, for coming on the ZenPlus podcast. I know, like, I just want to honor you too because you literally kind of altered the the direction of my life, uh, introducing me to Stoicism in December, and it was something I've never really been exposed to. And uh, you're listening to your audiobook because uh, you read it. It was just awesome, like, especially that the ending there. But I guess I have uh, one more question to, to leave you with. Huh? It's kind of a weird one, but coming back to, you said you helped these underprivileged kids, um, kind of taught them, but and you and you shared stoic, stoic ideas with them. Um, what did you learn from that experience?
1: What did I learn from the experience of doing that? I think... One of the things that struck me about doing it actually was that there were a bunch of things that struck me, and and one of one of them was I kind of, in some ways, I was more drawn to to working uh, with people um, in those settings uh, that were maybe socially excluded or kind of like you know less well off uh, financially and so on. and one of the things that struck me as well actually was that stoicism resonated with a lot of the especially not just young guys actually there were there were some 15 year old um client uh, girls uh, young women that i worked with who were actually more drawn to stoicism there are many people that are alienated from counseling and psychotherapy because they... um believe that it's stigmatized so if you go and see a psychotherapist it means that you're weak in their mind like Mm -hmm. if you're a 15 year old tough guy or girl like you maybe don't want to say that you're in counseling or or therapy like because it would be like admitting weakness or vulnerability and the you know the fact is that often those people are drawn to stoicism like because it seems to promise to help them to become even tougher than they already right even though stoicism might teach many of the things that we do in psychotherapy because it kind of approaches it from a resilience angle I would say it's less stigmatizing so it reaches with similar ideas to psych therapy it reaches a completely different audience you know it reaches people that wouldn't touch therapy or counseling with a barge pole not that, that's one of the things I learned about the subject and about the the clients as it were and I guess um, one of the things maybe that I, I guess one of the things maybe that I learned about myself was, this, this is a, a hard truth, but um, there's a lot of debate about the extent to which external goods might contribute to flourishing. And I think they clearly do in some sense, right? It's harder, it is harder to flourish and you are disadvantaged in some ways if you're deprived of an education, for example. Mm-hmm. For, for instance, and this is a problem for Stoicism, right? It's a challenge for Stoicism. You know, for so Stoicism places a lot of emphasis, as we said earlier on, on the way that we use external goods. But the meditations of Marcus Aurelius would be one of those externals. It's a book, it's an object right? You could be deprived of that. Like, You might never have been able to get, lay your hands on a copy. Marcus might never have written it. Mm. Like, so one of the, the, the kind of exceptions or special cases for Stoics would be the presence of a teacher or a book, because that's an external, and it's partly in the hands of fate, whether you'd ever have access to it or not. And yet it seems to be important, because it's one of the things that potentially allows us to to learn to become resilient and independent. So this is an anomaly, but you know. So sometimes I still kind of wrestle with this idea: to what extent are we in the hands of of fate? You know, to what extent, like, do we have the freedom to flourish and make the most out of a situation if we don't even have good role models? But you know, I, in, in academics, debate this, and you, know, they, they, some of them would want to say, no, there is a sense in which you're screwed right? If you, you grow up and you don't have an education, you, know, and you don't have access to appropriate role models, you've just got like negative role models around you and stuff. But one of the things that kind of gives me pause for thought is the fact that I've known a lot of people who were in that situation over the years, and some of them had struggled, but many of them actually had arrived at insights. Um, although they'd never read the meditations, it's different now because you have the internet and stuff, right? When I, you know, when I was a kid, you, you know, you, you had access to much more limited resources. Um, you couldn't go on YouTube, like you know, you only had the teachers, that, you know, around you. So like, people have access to more information. Now that's a big change uh, all over the world. But the, the young people that I met, you know, many of them had figured out some of these insights on their own and even though they were deprived of role models, and, and actually, some of the people that I've met that have been through the shittiest situations had had often kind of achieved the greatest inner strength. So that that gives me some pause for thought and some reassurance that maybe even in tough situations it's possible for people to dig within themselves and arrive at what must be a kind of perennial wisdom, although nevertheless I still think it's easier if people have access to appropriate education and role models. Um, That's one of the things that that I've learned, and not to underestimate the potential that that lies within individuals, even in the absence of the Stoic teachings that we talk about. Sometimes people ask me, for instance, who are the people that I most admire and it kind of, this bugs me a little bit actually, like often when I'm doing podcasts and things and, and people are very success oriented like they're motivational life coaches and stuff and they say donald who's the most inspirational figure you can think of and mm-hmm. they, like it's kind of like they want me to say some famous sportsman or businessman or something like that and i think no if i'm completely honest like the the people that and so i mean i don't i've got no idea like successful figures on tv and so i don't know what they're actually like in their personal lives so it doesn't really mean that much to me but the the people over, over the course of my life that i found most inspiring um, where people who grew up in really underprivileged, shitty situations on rough council estates surrounded by smack addicts and nevertheless turned out to be good people and kind of like improved themselves and, and made something. Some of the people that I find most inspiring in life are recovering alcoholics, for example, or drug addicts that I've met over the years that had this kind of like wisdom to them and were spending their lives helping other people because they'd hit rock bottom like and it hadn't destroyed them they'd kind of turned it around and like and made something positive out of their life i i i find that a lot more relatable than turning on tv and 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 looking at, at, at you know like some steve jobs type figure or you know, some Olympic athlete or whatever—that doesn't really resonate with me. It doesn't seem real, and I don't really know what challenges they've faced in life, anyway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I, you know, I can look at people that I know that have lost everything, and maybe even done bad things in their life, but then kind of come back from it, like and turn things around and, and made themselves into a better person. Mm-hmm. That's something that I can look at and think that there's something worth learning from that.
0: Wow. And there you have it, guys. There's Donald Robertson, and um, just a pleasure speaking with you.
1: Well, likewise, thank you very much for inviting me on your podcast.